Good afternoon. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Toronto Blue Jays not in action tonight, but we are. And what a weekend to recap. Zoom out a little bit. Rewind a little bit. The Jays had lost 9 of 10. Things look dire. They dismiss Charlie Montoyo. Win 2 out of 3. And then from there, it's been... Victory after victory after victory after victory after victory after victory. Six consecutive victories. Victory after victory after victory. Uh, The All-Star break mixed in between there, but the Jays come out of it hot and beat the Boston Red Sox 28-5, and 8-4. Our pal Adam Dorowski over at Baseball Reference lets us know that the Boston Red Sox have now set modern major league records for the largest negative run differential over any three, four, and five-game stretch. That goes all the way back to 1901. That handles the AL and the NL and the Federal League. No team has been outscored that badly over a three-game stretch in the last 120-some-odd years, at least. And the Sox started that before the break, too, so it gets even worse for them. Can't really go with the schadenfreude too much when the Jays were very recently losers of 9 of 10 and let their manager go. But here's where you're at. The Jays won 8 of the last 9. They're back in the top wildcard spot. Only half a game up on the Rays, but most importantly, four-game cushion now over the last team out. So if you're Cleveland, the team that's closest to a wildcard spot, and you were looking to catch Toronto, not only do you have to jump two teams, you have to make up four games. Boston, the White Sox, the Orioles, all within a couple games of that as well. But maybe the most important thing, the Jays putting extra teams in between them as the Mariners have lost three straight. The Red Sox have lost five straight. And the Rays and Guardians both dropped series over the weekend. Jays are now 10 games over 500. And uh, thanks to that series, again, 28-5-4-1-8-4. Big old plus 30. Uh, The Jays run differential is now up to plus 54. It's kind of a funny thing. I I was on uh, the Raptor show with William Liu earlier, and he asked a little bit about how the Jays are doing it. And the comparison I made is, well, in the NBA, your net rating, especially once you start to look at you know, net rating in um, get rid of garbage time and and focus in on, you know, non-scrub opponents is a better predictor of what's to come than just your win-loss record. It's the same in baseball with run differential. However, in basketball, because net rating is possession-based, it would be very, very, very difficult to have a weekend like the Jays just had where it (laughs) this late in the season, all your metrics is, is... essentially geez double uh plus 54 and half of that came the the last weekend still we talked a lot during the one and nine stretch that that was the low point that wasn't the team coming back down to earth after a hot start that was the cold part and you'd expect them to eventually play better they have been doing that the bats are hot during that two-week stretch that includes the the all-star break, all-star break, so it's only nine games. 241 ERA. Very, very good. 161 WRC+, plus, 
which again takes um, a bunch of factors into account and puts every team on the same scale. That's number one in baseball. The walk rate hasn't been up, which has tended to be an indicator for the Jays, but strikeout rates down, chase rates down, swing rates down a little bit. Um, everyone in the lineup except for Bobachet, George Springer, and Santiago Espinal have just been on a tear during this stretch. And now the Jays will get a pretty good Cardinals team that's without Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado due to the restricted list. And then they'll get the Tigers, the worst offensive baseball on a team that's 20 games under 500 for four games Thursday to Sunday. Wondering how confident you're feeling after this run, especially with the whiplash that comes after that really cold stretch and the dismissal of Charlie Montoyo. You can text us at 590-590 or tweet at me, Blake Murphy, ODC. Let us know how confident you're feeling, how much this last little bit has made a difference to you. Uh, we're going to talk to Eno Saras, Ben Clements, and John Morosi a little later. But first, to help us contextualize what we've just seen and zoom out a little bit, take a look at the Jays through 96 instead of the Jays in nine and 10 game stretches. Our pal from the Spin Rate podcast, the ghost runner on first, Drew Fairservice. How are you, buddy? Buddy, I'm doing as well as can be. Yeah, how could you not be after that weekend? I guess my, my question to you uh, after that weekend series is LOL, LMAO, or whatever the roll on the floor one is. What's your preferred Red Sox, uh, Red Sox reaction right now? It's got to be uh, LOL. I mean, the Red Sox are banged up. They're missing a lot of good players, but that doesn't mean that it's any less hilarious that they're LOL. We may have uh, lost Drew there for a second. We'll try to get him back. Uh, but yes, it was. It's it's pretty funny, and you don't want to. Baseball's cruel, and the everything changes quickly, so you don't want to get two on top of another team. But if there was a team you were going to do that with, it's probably the Red Sox, who uh, Jays fans I don't believe are too fond of, and who are not super graceful when things are going well. Um, Drew's back with us, and I tweeted after that series that it was obviously this is a snap over reaction, but I tweeted only half seriously this is the most enjoyable chase series in the regular season ever and drew i had a lot of people responding to me with their favorite jays series ever or at least in recent memory uh how does this compare for you to some of the 2015 2016 ones we saw both in terms of enjoyment and that feeling that things are picking up i feel like the red sox undercut my ability to enjoy the series because they were just so bad Mm-hmm. You, you know, like the, the 2015, it's interesting that you bring that up because that was so much fun because they were just so much better than that team they were playing. Like it was all just on the Blue Jays winning in an overwhelming fashion. Watching the poor, pathetic Red Sox <laughs> flounder around and just kick it around the field or just all looking at each other while it falls at their feet and running out like, a, like their C lineup. It's not just, it's just not as much fun. You know, you almost, almost feel bad for the Red Sox. You absolutely do not feel bad for the Red Sox, Drew. But there is a little bit, I get what you're saying, we'll, we'll wrestling brain this a little bit, is you got to put over your opponent even in victory. If you beat a, if you tell the crowd, this guy's a jabroni, and then you beat the jabroni, everyone's like, well, you just beat a jabroni. If you tell the crowd, oh, this guy's really good, but I'm better, and then you go over, it looks like a big deal that you, you beat that team. Uh, so the Red Sox in disarray. The Blue Jays, not. But those wins count the same. How are you feeling confidence-wise now that the Jays are back in that top wildcard spot, have a few teams cushion, have a few games cushion, heading into you know what we'll call the extended stretch run here? 
I think you can't help but feel good. I, I heard you just now describing how so many players on the Jays are starting to swing, are swinging the bat well, and everyone is contributing for the most part. I mean, you know, we've probably seen the best stretch of Alejandro Kirk's season, but he's still, you know, a really good hitter. You've still got potentially like a really good stretch left in Vlad, right? I don't think we've seen that yet. You know, you've only got Bo Bichette to improve, but also, you know, Teoscar Hernandez like looks really good and he's really productive. You, Luis Griel has like become a completely different guy. And then you've got Tapia in there. You've got Springer. <laughs> like there's just guys that can give them a bit of a different look, you know, uh, Santiago Espinal there. They, I just, I, I really like the way that they're sort of shaping up and the, the way, you know, maybe I, I don't know if healthy, I mean, who's healthy and in going into August in the baseball season, but, I, know, I feel like you can't help but feel feel pretty good about them. The pitching looks pretty good, and you can't help but feel like like reinforcements are on the way as well. Oh yeah, and we'll talk reinforcements in just a minute here. I want to I want to dive in on some of the specific players who've been hot, but to take kind of the long view here, I have the Jays' stats for the season in front of me, and the thirteen position players who are on the roster right now, only one has a WRC plus below ninety six. So only one Blue Jay position player on the roster within a rounding error has been below league average at the plate. And that is of course, Bradley Zimmer, who's going to threaten some kind of record for fewest plate appearances per game appeared in. Cause he's only been up at the plate 86 times in 68 games. Uh, but yeah, you got to feel pretty good about, you know, one of the things we talked a lot about heading into this year compared to the last couple of years was, well, you can't have dead spots anymore. You can't have bad players playing regularly for you. And I think the Jays have addressed that drew when you look at that and you think about that, like have these guys who have maybe overperformed or come back to their norms, like a Rymal, well, Rymal Tapi is overperforming career wise. Now BGO's gotten back to kind of being what they envisioned him as a, a super sub bench guy. Are you at a point where you're not even really looking at reinforcements on the, the position player side, given the needs with pitching? I think that if there is a, an obvious upgrade available, then maybe you take it. And then you try to figure out where those, you know, how that all works at the end of the day, if you've got a, an upgrade that can be maybe longer term, more than just this year. But I think that when you look at the successes of guys like Biggio, Tapia, and Santiago Espinal as well, um, you're able, you, you have enough good players now that you're able to put those guys into positions to succeed. And when you put them into positions to succeed, then they then you can get the best out of them. When you don't ask them to do too much, when you don't ask Kevin Biggio really to be your leadoff hitter, you ask him to be your number nine hitter. You don't ask him to play out of position. You ask him to fill in at first, maybe some second, and then very rarely in the outfield. You're not you're not asking him to do stuff he's not capable of doing. It's, it's really, I think, important to be cognizant of who and what you've got and not trying to stretch that because that's when I get exposed. You know, the acquisition of Matt Chapman has just been so key, I think, to so many of those things because it solved that problem immediately and, and for the balance of the season. You've got a very good player that you can put in there every single day, but he doesn't have to be the best player on the team. He doesn't have to, you know, he can have this weird season that he's been having that just keeps getting you know, better and better. But the fact that Matt Chapman started so slow and has been kind of snake bitten and whatever doesn't 
mean, it doesn't mean the end of your season, but it also means that you're not asking Espinal, not asking Vigio, you're not asking these other guys to do other stuff. And then they're able to chip in and make those positive contributions in meaningful places while you give Springer rest, while you are able to figure out what's going to work today at second base, while you can get Vlad off his feet from time to time. So I, I really think that so much of, of the way that the roster has been constructed with the added bonus of some health other than Danny Jansen and then with guys just like taking to some of the changes and, and Tappy is a good example of that where he's just he's hitting the ball harder, right? I don't know that he's doing anything particularly different, hitting the ball higher than he did last year, which is <laughs> hard not to do. <laughs> yeah, but, breaking stack cast records last year. Yeah, yeah, up above zero. Way to go. You're you're on the on the road to success. But I just think that the, that the, the roster has been constructed and the team has been healthy and performing in a way that they haven't been forced to make any difficult decisions. Now they're able to do like greedy sort of rich guy. They're having rich guy conversations now. Like which of our many multi-talented and, and, and uh, multi-functional um, uh, utility guys should be used today, you know, and you're able to play some, play some matchups and look at who's going to be, you know, in a position to succeed. And that, and that really helps. So, I mean, are you saying would I say no if, if there was a, a good Juan Soto deal on on the on on the on the, on the table or or Shohei Otani or something that's like crazy significant upgrade? Of course not. But the marginal ones aren't the ones that we just need to focus on right now. There's there's not going to be a Corey Dickerson type acquisition because there's not really that many at bats to to hand out to him. I, I've made the point before about. You you say you, you know when you're especially when you're younger you get like a, a tax return you get some like free money <laughs> you end up like spending it four different times that's kind of what I think a lot of us who talk about the team a lot do with DH you can't keep giving DH at bats out to everybody there's only so many to go around so you don't necessarily need to make like a significant commitment to somebody because you're able right now to continue to put guys into positions to succeed continue to let guys know what their role is and continue to get them the guys who need it rest so so to that to that answer i say unless there's a big upgrade out there i don't know that that they need to make a, a move yeah and the name i think of when you lay out that dh thing and spending your tax return four times is josh bell right before the season josh bell looked like a wonderful fit in the high middle of that lineup as a switch hitter with power who can play first base in dh and, and uh, everyone has stopped playing him in the outfield. So I don't think that's a thing. But now, and, and part of this is Danny Jansen and Alejandro Kirk being so good, and even Tapia being good enough that you can, you know, DH Springer a little bit more, rest him a little bit more. Where would he play? Where would those plate appearances come? Um, and, and there was a stretch, too, where it was like, well, maybe you bump Tapia down to the Zimmer role and you upgrade the Tapia spot. And now suddenly Tapia is, you know, it, what's the, I have it here in front of me. So over the last 60 days, he has a WRC plus of 154, which ranks 25th in all of baseball. I know you mentioned the the launch angle stuff, and that's something we heard when the Jays got him. You know, the Gritchick thing was a little bit about shedding the money and the, the old pint-sized prospect there. Um, but part of it was also the Jays thought maybe it was a buy low on top of you and they could do some swing changes and some approach changes that would get a little bit more out of him. There's not a ton of change in the you know, the plate discipline stuff other than him being a little bit more aggressive, but are you a believer in Rymal Tapia league average ish hitting fourth outfielder at this point? I think it's a matter of like, a, what does he bring? What does he do? 
and and be is he in a position to succeed? And this is where maybe you're able to get like really nerdy and deep into it with a guy like him, where it's like, what's it, what kind of a pitcher is a good matchup for him? Mm-hmm. Can we get him in against this kind of guy? You know, just like with uh, same as like you would say with BGO, if you got a guy that's a little bit wild, a guy who you, you know, I'm trying to think of, like, you know, like a Michael Walker or somebody like that, mm-hmm. who kind of has a bad reputation for walking guys, but can get you to chase. That's a good matchup for Biggio, right? Let Biggio get in there and just dare you to throw four balls before before you could get three over the plate. Tapia is the same sort of thing. He can win. He can really use that, that high contact approach. That can be really helpful. That can be really a good matchup. You can get the most out of it. Can he be a league average guy? Sure. He doesn't look too much different than he did in um, in uh, 2019. I think was it was the year that he was pretty good um, with similar numbers in terms of OPS. But of course, that's playing you know in Colorado. So I think that I think that that if they can convince him that to just keep hitting whatever they're doing, I guess is you know, what I'll say is they've got him hitting the ball harder, which is always a good idea. And it doesn't necessarily mean just kind of slap and run like you would see like in the '80s. It's more like you know you don't have to try to hit the ball 450 feet. Um, you don't have to try to hit a fly ball every time. Just try to hit the ball hard, and the rest will take care of it itself, right? Stay within, stay within who he is. You know, he's not going to be an extreme fly ball guy, I don't think. His, his, what's his launch angle up to this year? Four and a half, <laughs> right? Uh, up from negative four and a half. So, again, not dramatic changes, as you said, but I think kind of just putting him in a position to succeed, getting him to make important key changes like hitting the ball harder and then see what happens from there. And then, yeah, I think that, again, by not asking him to do too much, by not asking him to be out there every day, by not putting him in there against tough guys or guys who get a ton of swing and miss or, 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 or can get a lot of chases because that's his big thing, right? He swings at a mm-hmm. lot of stuff. He's got a really like, first percentile chase rate. So somebody who might fill the strike zone up, there's Tapia, a good matchup. And, can, and, and again, I, I really like his, the dimension that he can add to the Blue Jays and that he's not the same kind of hitter as the rest of the, of the, rest of the lineup. Yeah, and I, I like the way you describe that because I think it's something that we can learn from a little bit where it's it's a lot easier certainly to identify and maybe even to prescribe one big change to a guy. But sometimes if you can just nudge a guy to be a little bit better in a lot of ways, that adds up. So he's hitting the ball in the air just a little bit more. He's hitting the ball just a little bit harder. He is... You know, he's striking out more, but you're okay with that for the aggression trade-off. And all those little things pull in the same direction together. Um, And Drew, I just want to mention, so I I mentioned WRC Plus on this show a lot, and and I'll explain it, you know, a fair number of times. And you mentioned Rymel Tapia's 2019. And and I'm going to read you his stat line from that year playing in Colorado and his stat line this year. Uh, 275 average, 309 OBP, 415 slugging. 286 average, 309 OBP, 417 slugging. So we're talking about two points of difference in OPS, but because of the Coors field factor and the offensive environment and baseball being lower this year, that's a change in WRC plus from 74 to 101. So exact same production, 27% percentage point boost uh, being out of Coors in a tougher year. So if you ever wondered the value of WRC plus, Ryan Maltapi is the guy. Drew, if we're okay then with the hitting side of things, that means, of course, between now and August 2nd, the Jays are going to look to fortify pitching. Uh, this has not been a secret since the very, very start of spring training. We knew bullpen additions would be needed, and now maybe you're looking at a starter. Uh, I have to give you your opportunity here to make your pitch for Shohei Otani, but 
behind Otani, are there any names you've found yourself, you know, bringing up the fan graphs page for a little more often the, this last little bit? I was, uh, well, picking the the bones of the Red Sox a little bit this weekend, being like, I wonder what a uh, Nady Evaldi would look like in <laughs> form. You know, he throws real hard. And, you know, back in, uh, I'm pretty sure in 2018, he was, he did some stuff, a lot of stuff out of the bullpen as well, as mm-hmm. well as being like a, an effective starter. I mean, that's kind of what that, that 2018 Red Sox team was one that it might be an, might be an interesting model for the Blue Jays in terms of if they get to the playoffs and they do make a deep run because they had starters all over the place, right? They they their bullpen was bad, so they just stopped using them. Uh, you know, obviously famously Chris Sale getting the last out of the World Series as a closer. Um, so maybe a guy like Ivaldi, uh, who I like again, he throws really hard. It's a little straight, but um, the, just is, is he an option? You know, are, are, are another pitcher um, of his sort of sort of caliber. It's just so it's also murky right now. Again, who's going to be out there? You know, the Jose Quintana's and things like that. I mean, a guy who went from being underrated to overrated to underrated to overrated, and that's kind of a nice bit of a nice story. Like, is, is that what they what they need? I, I'm not even sure. It's really tough. I mean, obviously, need anything anything and and not not unlike the bullpen. Um, if there's a significant upgrade like Shohei Otani, yeah, you do that. You do that every single day. You, you don't ever turn back. But uh, but I don't know. What about you? Is there, is there somebody? Is there a sexy pick that you've got? Again, I I I, I had my eye on on Evaldi, uh, this weekend. It, it, you know, first and foremost, and you know, with the Tigers coming to town, there's a few guys maybe in the bullpen that might be a bit of a better fit. But uh, I don't know. I I'm, I don't, I've been asked this multiple times, and I always seem to struggle. But there's, there's not. I feel like I should have like a out of left field guy. Which sometimes, you know, truth be told, that's the Blue Jays front office MO, too. It's a guy who's two years from free agency who might be a bit of a better fit that maybe isn't quite on the same rental player radar that I'm kind of stuck on. Yeah, Quintana's a name I've come back to a lot just because I think the acquisition cost is going to be very reasonable. Like, he's a 33-year-old who's a free agent after the year and the Pirates aren't doing anything. Like, this was clearly a sign-him-to-flip-him situation. And Quintana, like you just laid out for Evaldi, has some recent experience coming out of the bullpen and he's a lefty, which, you know, if he ends up in the bullpen in the playoffs, then you don't have to do the Anthony Bonda thing uh, on a playoff roster. So that's maybe an interesting one. I think the high water mark is, you know, Luis Castillo. I, I don't know that you're aiming any higher than that. I'd imagine the Reds are going to ask for a haul for him. But he's another guy who's almost 30 on a team that's going nowhere. And you know, they're going to trade him this year or next because he's a free agent beyond that. Um, my dream target is Pablo Lopez, but I think with, with two plus years left to control, uh, the Marlins probably ask for a very, a piece that this front office is maybe not uh, willing to move off of. For sure. And I think that the Luis Castillo thing is really interesting, but I, because there's so many parallels to what Barrios mm-hmm. last year, but I think the Blue Jays are, maybe out of that sweepstakes because they spent all their Jose Barrios money or all their Luis Castillo money on Jose Barrios. They don't have those same sort of uh, higher, you know, they don't have a prospect like often Martin, Matthew Martin that they can put in there, which is, but do they uh, have any good prospects they could put in there instead of Austin Martin? Well, but they have, <laughs> they have, yeah, they don't have any prospects, but they need a prospect like him that, other people still think they're good, but they have come to realize are maybe not as good because they've yes. seen them up close. Yeah, a year but, late uh, on the Jordan Groshans thing, maybe. Well, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how it goes sometimes, though. This is uh, this is the the tough part of this time of year is 
people are going to value that differently. And, you know, mm-hmm. at Baseball America, clearly not on the take from Shapiro and Atkins with only two J's in the top 100. Uh, I don't know. And and then you've got Yosfer Zulueta, who is potentially, uh, you know, a prospect you could deal who's been starting all year. And they moved him to the pen in the minors now to see you know, if he can maybe reach the majors doing that. So I don't know the, the farm system still from talking to prospect people sounds like there's decent depth, but you're talking depth through the like 100 to 500 range of the national prospect list, not the one to 100 range. So I don't know how those deals materialize. The other big thing too, is like so many of the good relievers on bad teams cost nothing. So like if you're the pirates, why are you really moving off of David Bednar if you don't have to, other than like, well, maybe you don't believe he's going to keep it up. Um, anyway, Drew, Shohei Otani and Juan Soto, you get a call from both of those front offices and they tell you the exact same trade package. Can get you Soto, can get you Otani. Which one do you pull the trigger on? This is the sick, sick thing about this is that I would pick Juan Soto, which is so twisted. It's wrong. I feel wrong <laughs> saying it out loud. If I feel filthy and dirty, like I've betrayed everything that I know myself to be, but you can't, you can't say no to a player like Juan Soto. If you have the opportunity to get him in your mix, you're out of your mind. Like this is, this is 23 year old Ted Williams <laughs> with like the, the profile is zero risk or as close to it as you could ever get. It's, so it's not only is it no risk, which is like appeases the kind of Cleveland parts of the Blue Jays front <laughs> office brain and the part of that that has infect us all. It's also like a ceiling you can't even see. Like he's not Shohei Otani because nobody is. But you have to, if you have to make like one quasi practical choice, it's got to be that. I can't, and I, again, I, I can't even believe, I want to slap myself in the face for saying these words out loud, but I, you can't, you can't do do Otani before Soto if all other things are equal, which is so crazy to say out loud. Camp, this is the most you've turned your back on someone since you posted on Instagram on the weekend, how much you like someone else's dog better than your own dog. I like the dog because it lives in somebody else's house. That's <laughs> the number one. That, that is the, that dog's like uh, difference. You know, that is its value add. It doesn't live in my house. That makes it a way better dog than the one that lives in my house. Justice for pancakes. Uh, all right, Drew. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Keep up the great work at Spin Rate. And uh, tell Ricky we uh, we said what's up next time uh, you're on with him. I will do that, and I will ignore pancakes out of sight. <laughs> uh, Drew Fairservice of the Spin Rate podcast with Caitlin McGrath, with Ricky Romero, who I almost called Rocky Romero because I watched too much wrestling on the weekend. Like when I called Keith Law, Keith Lee one time. Wrestling brain. It it infects all of us. Um, quick reset here. Jays, winners of eight of the last nine, now in the top wildcard spot. The teams behind them all conveniently playing each other these next couple of days too. Uh, Cleveland and Boston, who are the last two out in the wildcard race, are head-to-head. And Tampa Bay... And Baltimore, Tampa Bay, who are half a game behind you, and Baltimore, who are on the still on the fringes of this uh, push, they're playing against each other. So you like your chance. Well, you're going to pick up half a game on two of those teams and lose half a game on two of those teams today. Um, but that is to say, if you can stay hot through this week, you're going to be able to create additional cushion on someone as those teams, someone has to lose in those matchups. So uh, if the Jays can keep rolling here, we'll see how that works out. Part of why the Jays have kept rolling, Ross Stripling has been 
terrific stepping into the rotation. After break, we're going to talk to Eno Saris of The Athletic and ask him the question, statistically at least, does Ross Stripling have the best changeup in baseball? That's next with Eno on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Toronto Blue Jays fans certainly prefer sunshine to rain of late. Uh, quite the slingshot to go from one and nine to eight and one. Underlying some of that. Ross Stripling filling in very capably in the rotation for Hyunjin Ryu. Uh, we're going to try to get a a hold on just how reliable we think Ross Stripling's sample to date is moving forward. Uh, but first we have to talk to the king of pitching plus and stuff plus, Eno Saris of The Athletic, about the half marathon he completed on the weekend. Congrats, man. Yeah, I'm so sore. <laughs> I wonder who's more sore. You did a half marathon. I went to a Rage Against the Machine concert. I, I don't know which one of us has the worst, like, oh, no, I'm so old pain today. <laughs> I'm going to catch them when they come They come my way. So we'll, awesome. we'll be able to compare. Now uh, you just That means you have to run a half marathon. Yeah, I've done that before, just not, you know, recently. Uh, I did a couple years ago. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a lot of desire to go back to that. Uh, I will say the post-half marathon light beer to rehydrate i know you're a big craft beer guy i know you've got your own beer now uh was your own beer too hoppy for like a post a post run thing what what did you go with i went with a bunch of water (laughs) i went i'm sorry i just wanted to hydrate dude i didn't want to alcohol is dehydrating alcohol is an (laughs) electrolyte as i understand it come on um (laughs) Sorry to disappoint you. Uh, that's all right, man. Um, so, Eno Saris, one of the things you wrote recently at The Athletic, and I want to talk to you about some Jay-specific stuff in a little bit here on the pitching side, but um, you had this big piece about how three true outcomes are down in baseball for the first time in almost two decades. And, and for anyone who doesn't know, three true outcomes refer to strikeouts, walks, and home runs. And the reason they're called three true outcomes is because those are the most controllable things on the pitcher side and the hitter side because once the ball's in play in the field – it's subject to a lot more randomness. Um, so, you know, three, three true outcomes, strikeouts, walks, home runs. It, it's been something that's talked about as, well, the rise of three true outcomes, the Adam Dunification of baseball isn't great for entertainment purposes. So when you dig into why this might be happening, how much of it do you think is influenced by the league and the sport not wanting things to continue on that path? Uh, very much so. I mean, I think that the ultimate goal is to reduce strikeouts. And so, so far they've been successful, but once I tell you the reasons why you can sort of gauge about how successful they've been, one of the reasons why strikeouts are down is because their pitchers are no longer hitting. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a major part of it. <laughs> um, so that doesn't mean that they've actually changed anything fundamentally about the game. They've just removed some pitchers hitting. Uh, the other thing they did was the sticky stuff enforcement. Um, that actually did reduce strikeouts a little bit, but we're reduced all the way back to 2017. And I think they would like to go back maybe even a decade or two beyond that. Um, and, uh, and so the work is still to be done. What they did do was reduce home runs by deadening the ball. Um, and, uh, and then the walks actually just go down. The walks go up and down with the home run rate because a walk is basically a measure of how scared the pitcher is of the hitter. You can see this on the individual hitter level. Uh, I, uh, the one example I think really brought it to focus for me is Chris Davis of the Orioles didn't have actually a great sense of the zone, but when he was at his most powerful, he walked a lot. And then once uh, he wasn't as powerful, he didn't walk as much. The walks were cut in half. And so you can see that that, that happens on the league-wide level, too. If pitchers aren't as afraid of the home run, they don't walk as many people. So that's basically why it's been happening. But I think you're right. This is all in the goal of more balls in play, more action. I think mostly because when you're at the ballpark, the strikeout is not that exciting. At home, you can kind of see, oh, it was 98 up in the zone. Oh, you threw that crazy breaking ball afterwards. Um, You know, oh, the pitching ninja, you know, it's great. (laughs) But. You know, when you're at the ballpark, uh, it's kind of hard to see what pitches are which. You don't get a unless you're right behind home plate, you don't get an idea of what the movement looks like. So I think there is a, an effort to re- reduce strikeouts. I don't, in terms of the movement, I don't know if this is happening at more ballparks. I know it wasn't when I was in Chicago a couple weeks ago, but at Rogers Center here in Toronto, they show the horizontal and vertical break on the board. But like, obviously at this point, it's it's like where exit velocities were a few years ago. Like nobody has the baseline to compare it to, but we've heard pitchers talk about that. They look at it and they find value in it. So um, thought you'd find that interesting. So in terms of if the league is headed this way, and if we work under the assumption that the league is going to continue to try to nudge things this way, more balls in play, fewer home runs, strikeouts and walks. What advantages does that potentially create? If a team can be on top of this and be right at the curve at the team building level, whether that's shifts or being more aggressive running or where do you see kind of the team level advantages before like not, I I imagine not everyone will be caught up at the exact same rate. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, I helped uh, Jason Stark on some reporting that they're going to change the shift rule because they banned the shift in the minor leagues and nothing happened. Um, and so now they're thinking about creating a little sort of slice in the ground, a pie slice behind second base where nobody can stand, which would be kind of the first time in baseball history where there'd be a line in the ground that nobody can stand around. So, um, you know, once that happens, yeah, you're going to have teams that are going to be modeling, you know, how can, how close can I get to that line? How can I, cause what happened in the minor leagues was they said, okay, you have two guys on one side and two guys on the other side and they can't be on the grass. Well, teams found out that if I put my second baseman almost on the outfield grass, really close to the first baseman, I still catch all those those ground ball singles from the lefties, and I can have my shortstop basically stand on the bag at second, and he gets all the up-the-middle base hits. Um, and so they didn't see any new base hits. So, you know, what, every team is going to look at the rules as they come down and try to model around it. 
like, for example, for strikeouts, I think one of the best things we could try is the pitch clock Mm -hmm. because it would keep the pitchers from resting so long in between and they can't throw as hard um, if they can't rest as much. Maybe a team is on that um, and is, like, looking to acquire players that are already uh, pitching pretty fast, have a fast pace, because they won't lose as much velocity uh, when this new rule comes into effect. So, you know, some of the stuff, most of the stuff has been done in the minor league. So most teams are aware of what's going to happen and are modeling uh, what they should do about it and are ready some teams, I think, are already uh, acting sort of like trying to stay ahead of that and already do, making moves uh, based on what they think will happen. You know, what is your personal opinion on the banning of the shifts? Because it, it's something to me that I guess I kind of understand it, but I've always thought stuff like that, in, especially in a sport like baseball, the it'll eventually find like a new equilibrium. And we've seen that a little bit here in Toronto where for the first couple months of the season, the Jays were by far the most aggressive shifting team in baseball. And that's really come down. They're not a low shifting team now, but they're, you know, in in the like eight to 10 range for how aggressively they shift. They've more or less stopped doing it when Kevin Gosman's on the Hill because the results weren't there. Do you think that's something that could, as we see more and more balls in play and as hitters get used to it, that would find its own kind of natural leveling off point. We've seen some evidence of uh, hitters bunting and hitting ground balls into the shift. So lefties without anybody on base, uh, their opposite field ground ball rate is, you know, at a high uh, for, for where they have been. Um, And so you know, there is some evidence that, uh, that, that players are starting to kind of uh, find that equilibrium on their own. Uh, so I agree with you on that. Um, at the same time, you know, we tell hitters in the minor leagues, we tell hitters in little league, we, I tell my kids, you know, a, a line drive up the middle is a good hit. You know, right. and then they get to the big leagues and there's a guy standing right up the middle. So, um, yeah, we could we could try to start that all over again, but it seems pretty ingrained in the history of baseball that, you know, that line draw of the middle is, is good. And so maybe, you know, maybe we can make this little rule change and, and it's good. The, the people that will benefit from this um, tend to be um, uh, Tapia types. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, guys who spray the ball don't have as much power. Um, and that's kind of what's missing from the game. If you kind of remember growing up, we had Omar Vizquel. We had, you know, we had these guys that didn't have that much power, but were really great defenders and were athletes and fast um, and could spray the ball all around. So maybe, maybe that is part of uh, what we can bring back into the game. So I'm, I'm, I'm okay with them uh, tinkering with the game. Yeah, I think that the other sports have done more of it and it's been to their benefit. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and you know, even to, to kind of counter my own thought about finding an equilibrium, this is still the, the lowest batting average on balls in play we've seen in baseball since 1992. So even if players are adjusting a 290 BABIP, we're, we're you know, that's a good chunk from the, the 300 or so that we have tended to assume over the years. So, okay, let's take it to the pitching side because that's the fielding, that's the shifting. On the mound, though, Something you tweeted a couple of weeks ago just before the All-Star break was fascinating to me. And for anyone who doesn't know, Eno at The Athletic has this pitching plus metric, which tries to quantify, you know, what a pitcher can control basis, both in terms of command and in terms of stuff. Um, when you talk about 
Does a pitch do what it's supposed to do? Does it move and, and is it deceptive like you want? Does it generate the right swings and misses? That kind of stuff. And through your stuff plus metric, Ross Stripling's changeup has been the best in baseball. Um, I guess, are you a believer in that? And what makes Stripling's changeup so intriguing? Yeah, I, I, I talked to him about that when he was in town here. And he said that, you know, he just found a new grip on the on the ball. And it, and it really it really worked for him. He was working in long toss, I think, with Daniel Mengden. And he said, you know, this is something that pitchers tell me a lot is, when you're when you're working in long toss, it's a great time to just kind of filter through grips because uh, the movement is exaggerated. There's mm. much more room for the pitch to move, um, and so you can kind of play with grips, and you'll see, you know, as, as opposed to sort of 50 feet away, now you're talking, uh, you know, 90, 100 feet away, uh, you're going to see that ball move more. And he said he just he just changed. I think he was to a two seam uh, changeup grip or to a four seam. I forget which one it was, but he just kind of. He just a little bit of a change to his grip, and it and it really took off for him. But generally, uh, another thing that's interesting about Stripling is I've talked to him about this since he was a Dodger. He basically was modeling his game after Ryu uh, hmm. because he said, you know, Ryu doesn't, you know, Ryu has a really good changeup, but also Ryu has a complementary, like sort of a large variety of pitches that he can go to, and he has good command of each of them. And so he's never been a guy who's going to be like Tyler Glass now. Where he's like, I have two pitches. I throw them in the middle of the zone and, you know, good luck. You know, that's not for you, you know. Um, and so Stripling has said, you know, I don't have uh, 98. I don't have that big breaking ball like a glass now. So he looked to Ryu when they were in the Dodgers organization to kind of model his game. And uh, now he's kind of stepping in and he's getting Ryu-like results and uh, in a very similar fashion, just lots of different pitches, a great changeup. Uh, and command of all those pitches. So when you when we talk about something like that, and you know a pitcher changes the grip and finds something new, or you know makes an adjustment and something's working, I know you recently found that the last four hundred pitches or so are the best kind of predictive sample for stuff plus. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes, uh, there's just and it's something that Rob Arthur found that, that there is there is a bit of a hot hand in in, in baseball. Like hmm. uh, pitcher stuff changes over the course of the season, um, and so it, there's semantics there. Are they maybe they're just better, and it's not really a hot hand. They're just they're better now because now they're throwing 98 instead of 97. But since their stuff goes up and down over the season. Um, you know, it does matter kind of what they've been doing recently. It's just, I think it's maybe a, uh, with regards to their health, you know, how healthy mm-hmm. are they? How good are they feeling? Yeah, um, and so the last, uh, the last four or five starts of, of stuff plus are slightly more predictive than the whole season. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Then that's uh it certainly backs up the kind of not eye test, but the feel test, the vibe test, um, you know, trade deadlines in eight or nine days here. Are there any potentially available starting pitchers that you look at and pitching plus is kind of saying this guy could be really undervalued? Uh, for starting pitchers that are available? Yeah, or, re- I mean, relievers as well. Um, the Jays are going to be in the market for both, so I'd be be curious to hear either. Um, yeah, I mean, this is it's actually really powerful when it comes to relievers. Um and so it, you know, it has a, uh, the model has a lot of good to say about uh, Jorge Lopez now that he's moved to uh, to uh, the bullpen there in Baltimore. But I guess it's a little bit difficult in Baltimore 
uh, to figure out um, if they should buy or sell. I yeah, mean, they got to start I, losing. I don't think that they're. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they have a, a, a group of relievers uh, that they could sell. Um, yeah, otherwise, you know, a lot of these relievers are on uh, – I'm, I'm sort of cycling through. A lot of these relievers are on contenders, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and uh, and the same is true, I think, of, of the good starting pitching. But, um, you know, I think of the Marlins as wanting to do a, a bigger deal in general. And maybe that appeals to the Blue Jays where, you know, uh, there's this idea that if you could give up a hitting prospect or two, uh, to the Marlins, they might give up uh, one of their starting pitchers that has years of control left. Like a Pablo Lopez. Um, so Pablo, he has an excellent changeup, and uh, and uh, if they like his, if they like the, you know, his arsenal, they've got a couple years of team control after. Uh, maybe something built on built on Moreno and at Al uh, in the minors. Maybe they don't have to give up a major league piece for that. Um, maybe they, you know, maybe they can figure something out. Um, the Red Sox may turn into uh, sellers soon, but <laughs> you know that you know I don't know if they want to sell in the in the in the uh, in the division and see see them again in the future. But um, uh, unfortunately, some of the sellers uh, don't really have that much. So if, unless you're going to pony up for Luis Castillo, who everyone knows is good, um, you know I will say this: the pitching plus model does love Tyler Malley. Okay. Uh, who is the second or third best uh, pitcher on the Reds? He has team control left. If the Reds don't think that he's going to get it together or don't value him as much going forward, maybe you can pry him loose uh, from from them. But um, you know, and then there's the obvious ones like Frankie Montas mm-hmm. and Luis Castillo that everybody's going for. So I will say that I think that Noah Syndergaard's slightly overrated because the mm-hmm. stuff has just not come back, and, and I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't make him necessarily my target. The Tyler Molly thing, very interesting from a pitching aspect. Um, he didn't travel here with Cincinnati. He went on the restricted list around That's the vaccination right. protocols. So uh, interesting for other contenders. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe he's in that Whit Merrifield so camp where it's, uh, <laughs> oh, I'd get the vaccination for a contender uh, kind of thing. You know, one more for you before we go, just quickly. Uh, I know that you are, you love pitching and just diving in on these guys and the changes pitchers make over time. We're going to see Adam Wayne right here on Wednesday. How fascinating is it to see him still do? He's almost 41 and he has a 340 ERA. It's his third season in a row of sub four ERA. Um, where does this Adam Wainwright season and really Adam Wainwright twilight rank for you as a baseball fan and a, and a pitching analyst? I love it because Adam Wainwright, the, the model loves him, but uh, if you poke under the hood, it, it makes so much sense. He has basically the best curveball in baseball. Mm-hmm. And then an average cutter, which has been important because he's gone to that cutter and away from his fastballs. And then he, he, the rest of his pitches have awful stuff and are, are really sort of almost bottom shelf. <laughs> he's an older dude. Th- these are not his best pitches but he can command those. So basically he's going to get you with the curveball. You just don't know when, and he's going to try and get ahead with the cutter. And then when you settle, settle in and you think, okay, it's cutter or curveball, then he's going to try and sneak a four seam <laughs> up or sneak a sinker down. And so it's kind of, it's, it, it's interesting too, because it's like backwards. I mean, people used to call about pitching backwards. This is, uh, this is, he's kind of the, the essence of modern pitching where he's, 
there's no, there's no establishing with a fastball low and away and then trying to do stuff after that. <laughs> you know, that's the last thing you'll see. Uh, so, it's a, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, me too. It's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, Eno, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Uh, next time we have you on, we got to talk some John Gray appreciation now that he's uh, the elite starter that, that I always believed he could be. Um, but for now, you go get an ice bath, pal. All right, thanks. Thanks, Eno. Uh, Eno Sars of The Athletic. Uh, some great stuff on the decline of three true outcomes this year and uh, Ross Stripling having a very good change up. Some, some interesting context there from, you know, having talked to Stripling about how he kind of tweaked that. I had never really given thought to using the long toss sessions and throwing a little less hard as a good environment to, to test out spin and movement because, you know, the harder you throw it, the, the more break you're going to have on that spin. So that's really fascinating. I, I'd be curious to talk to more pitchers about that. little bit of news before we take a break here. Uh, Mike Zanino and Kevin Kiermaier out for the season for the Tampa Bay Rays. That comes in per Mark Topkin of the Tampa Bay Times. So if you're looking at the Tampa Bay Rays, half a game behind the Jays in the second wild card spot right now, uh, pretty big hit there. We knew those guys were out a long time. They haven't been around lately, but the official designation that they're done for the year I don't know. I, I don't think anything would push the Rays to be big buyers in terms of taking on a lot of money or, or emptying out the farm system, uh, but they need help on the hitting side for sure. They do not score uh, a lot of runs. One of the worst offenses in the American League, uh, despite their 52 and 43 record. So little little note there as the Jays jockey for position uh, between seven teams for three wildcard spots and uh, eight, if you want to include Minnesota, who could lose grip of the AL Central at any time, especially if, as some people like to think, the White Sox could maybe get in the mix for Juan Soto. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk to Ben Clemens of Fangraphs about where he'd like to see Juan Soto land and, uh, you know, what... Uh, what this Cardinals team is going to look like, uh, Ben Clemens, who is a national guy fan grass, but he's also a Cardinals fan, and uh, what this Cardinals team is going to look like in Toronto without their two best players. Uh, ben Clemens is next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Gave you a little bit of news before the break there that the Rays are going to be without Mike Zanino and Kevin Kiermaier the rest of the season. The other news this week was that the St. Louis Cardinals, who are visiting the Blue Jays Tuesday and Wednesday, will be without Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, and Austin Romine. Austin Romine, who maybe doesn't feel like a big absence, but keep in mind, Yadi and Molina just now headed for a rehab assignment in Memphis. So the Cardinals quite shorthanded. Uh, we're going to talk a lot of national stuff with Ben Clemens of Fangraphs as well, uh, but he's also a Cardinals fan, so we'll get his take on it. But Ben Clemens, did your dog manage to get that giant stick home with him from the park? <laughs> she didn't even manage to take two steps with it. It was way too heavy. How's it going, Blake? I'm good, man. How are you doing? Good. Well, thanks. 
Uh, so let, let's start national. Let, let's zoom out here. The trade deadline's a little over a week away. I know that the first two parts of your trade value series are out. Um, your honorable mention list and numbers 40 to 50. I can only imagine that the reason we haven't seen a Blue Jay on that list yet is because their 40-man roster ranks 1 to 40, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but there are, I think, like three Blue Jays in the top 20. The Jays did uh, did quite well on this. They just happened to not have anybody in that intermediate yeah. tier. Yeah, I would imagine Manoa and Vlad are in there somewhere, and then the third one, I'm guessing Kirk, but maybe there's still some Boba Shet. Uh, I don't want to spoil it either. I'm just glad to know that there are uh, Blue Jays in there. There are also players Blue Jays could be uh, targeting as well. Your St. Louis Cardinals, though, potential Juan Soto suitors uh at a high level what do you think of the idea of the cardinals cashing in some of that prospect capital for a guy like juan soto in a season where the cardinals feel good not great so far yeah i think it makes sense i think that you kind of get a two for one when you trade for soto so one you get the fact that you will have who we think is the best hitter in baseball for the next three playoff runs and, I mean, that, that's really important. I don't think you can really overstate that. The Cardinals have a bunch of pretty okay outfielders. They have three guys who I think are a little bit better than league average and don't make too much money. And that's great, but I bet you Juan Soto will outproduce all of them next year. <laughs> uh, he, he's really good. And then, as an added benefit, I mean, one thing that the Cardinals are pretty good at doing and that I think a lot of teams of the Cardinals' ilk that draft and develop pretty well and have a big payroll, one thing they're good at doing is putting a big tent pole to build the team around, uh, you know, paying them a lot of money and then just drafting and developing around them. Well, like, you know, teams are good at developing two war guys and kind of average players. The Cardinals are great at it. And it's important to them to have big stars. You know, when they went through their fallow period from, uh, I don't know, call it 2014 to 2018 and 2019, it was largely because they were really good at developing average players and they didn't have any stars. So they went out and acquired Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt this is their recent MO, is that they, they cash in some prospect capital, trade for stars, and try to extend them. And trying to extend Juan Soto is actually, uh, I talked to a bunch of different people, uh, both on the public side and on the team side, when I was putting together this list. And I think a lot of people value getting to talk to Soto for two and a half years and trying to convince him to sign an extension pretty highly. Yeah. Because if you, can, you have the money to afford it, well, he just gives you so much certainty that the money is, like once you have that step cleared, it's a great way to spend it because it's just going to be good for a long time. Right. And and yeah, it's Juan Soto. We, we don't need to overthink it too much. And yeah, I think that that ability to develop lower end guys is a huge factor and, and it should to some degree dictate who's willing to get in on Juan Soto and the Cardinals are the best example, right? Like there's always a Lars Newt bar in the banana stand, so to speak. Like there's just, there <laughs> exactly. are, there are, they're a just a guy factory where they, they just manufacture uh, these, like you said, two win guys. So Soto's an interesting one there. Um, say they land Soto and we'll say for for the purposes of, of this experiment that the only pieces they lose off their major league team are maybe one of those outfielders and the rest we're going to look at prospect capital and things like that. Where do you think that would put the Cardinals in the National League? Um, maybe like a soft third. Okay, so I, I Dodgers, like Dodgers, Mets. Are the class of the NL. Mets are probably second. Okay. And then I have the Braves and the Cardinals, kind of even if the Cardinals add Soto. Okay. The Braves are kind of a kind of a cipher. I don't really know 
like what these guys are going to look like in their final form. Acuna looks like he's still kind of getting back into the swing of things. And I don't know if I completely believe Kyle Wright still, but they'd be good. And right now I, I don't think they're in the top five teams in the NL. So it would be a, it would put them right back in like the top tier, which they haven't been in for a little bit now. So with the Juan Soto sweepstakes, we'll call them. And it sounds like some insiders really think he's going to get moved by the deadline. I know your piece was titled, there's never a good time to trade Juan Soto. Uh, the second best time is right now. Um, or Sorry, I'm, pa- I'm paraphrasing that poorly. But w- when, when you hear about things like, well, the Nationals are looking to sell and a new ownership might prefer lots of cheap prospects versus having Juan Soto. I mean, does that drive you a little bit nuts sometimes? Yes, that's a, that's a dumb owner if that's what they prefer. <laughs> like, do you watch baseball and think, oh, man, like, I really hope we have some awesome top 100 prospects? No, <laughs> like, you want Juan Soto. That's what every owner who doesn't have Juan Soto wants. It makes very little sense to me. Well, it's the, it's you can kind of highlights that. Sorry, I was just going to say, okay, kind of highlights the difference between the people who would buy a franchise because they love baseball and, and want to watch and foster winning baseball versus the type of people who are buying sports franchises as like profit centers. Yeah, that's a good point. And so I guess it depends who they're selling it to. But I think you can make an argument that Soto's not a bad investment if you're a profit center kind of guy because you need like talented players to win championships. The Nats have kind of shown that. And I, w- I would be surprised if that weren't more of a smokescreen put up by the team in case they do trade Soto. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to to try to soften the blow of it or whatever. Um, So you made the point about with Juan Soto, you have three playoff runs with him and two and a half years to convince him to resign. Let's go down a tier of potential trade deadline target around the league. And one name that stood out to me, I've mentioned him a couple times today. I I don't want to, overhammer the point with Pablo Lopez as a, as a possible Jays target say, but he was an interesting one to me because he got honorable mention status for you and was in that class of, well, he's getting a free agency soon ish. And you know, he's a, he's a guy with two and a half left as well. Where do you draw those lines as you're doing that exercise or, or where, where are the lines drawn around the league in terms of, okay, this is a good amount of service time and then at this stage, maybe the value goes down because you are close to having to really pay this guy more. Um, I, I know that's kind of a a broad question, but I guess just years of control, the, the half a year versus one and a half versus two and a half, where do those lines nudge guys in your trade value columns? So it's, I mean, this is going to be a, a bit of a cop out of an answer, but it's a little bit contextual, but I think yeah. I can explain context pretty quickly. Sure. Basically, the better you get, the less it matters how many years you have left on your contract. Okay. So if you're really good, then you can get like the Trey Turner and Max Scherzer deal from last year where they got Scherzer for just the stretch run and Turner for a year and a half and gave up two very good prospects to get him. Now, if you were doing the like the math, counting it up, oh, it's not enough years of team control and Trey Turner's going to get paid a lot this year, blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, teams want stars. And if you're a star, the years of control matter a little bit less because you're probably getting paid pretty good money towards the end of those years anyway. Right. Teams just want them for their on-field talent, not so much because they're offering some crazy excess value or anything like that. The worse you get, like down to being an average player, the more important it is that a team can essentially pay you less than they'd have to pay for a free agent for a long time. So 
Lopez is one of these guys where if he were a little bit better, and I think he's pretty good, um, I, I've long thought Pablo Lopez is better than his ranking, and I'm a little bit upset that I didn't end up with him on the list there <laughs> because I, I talked, uh, I did this uh, piece in conjunction with a friend over the former coworker Kevin Goldstein last week or last year, and I convinced him to get Lopez on the list. And then he hurt himself and didn't pitch again last year. <laughs> it was like, ah, oh, great. Perfect, perfect. Um, but I think he's really good. And I think the thing that held me back from putting him on there is when I talked to various people about it, they were all like, well, he's good. But I don't know if he's a like complete difference maker in a way that a lot of these guys like would be. Uh, like Shane Bieber and Max Fried and Brandon Woodruff all have uh, will all be free agents after 2024 as well, like Lopez. And like those guys are all on this list. I'm not going to give yes. anything away by that. Like obviously they are. Uh, yeah, they, uh, but they're like better, basically. And I think they're better enough that teams would say, uh, you know what? Like the control matters, but I, I don't know. I want to have Max Freed for the next two and a half years. That's, that's worth it to me. And it's, it's difficult because if Lopez had an extra year of control or if you're a little bit better, I think teams would be willing to shell out a lot more for him. One thing that I've found from doing this, because I am like, I don't really have a baseball background. I haven't worked for a team or anything like that. And so I'm kind of coming at it from the outside is not every team and not every evaluator on every team thinks of this stuff the same way. Like you can paint a broad picture of teams want stars, teams want years of control. And if you have both amazing, but they want one of those two things, but some evaluators are higher than higher on one side than the other. And some teams like just really think a lot about their current position. And so we'll tilt that way. And it, it's way more art than science. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. I, uh, honestly, one of the things I've, I've thought we've needed to develop for a long time is like, I guess to, for lack of a better term, like a marginal wins above replacement that, that can take into account team situation and contention window. And uh, you know, that, yeah. that going from 82 to 83 wins doesn't mean nearly as much as going from 92 to 93 and things like that. And this is the time of year for that, right? Where, you know, especially in the AL, you look and there are seven teams within a couple games of the the three wild card spots, and that marginal win or two this next little bit could be a huge difference, and maybe that changes your willingness on the trade front. Um, ben, as you went through this exercise, first of all, my my biggest takeaway from this exercise annually, it's one of my favorite things that Fangraphs does each year, uh, is always just, man, there are so many good baseball players that I would love to have on the team that I'm covering Uh it's it's great. It, it's it makes times like this really fun. Um, as you went through it, and obviously you would have had conversations about guys who could potentially get moved in this next week and change here. Were there any things that stood out to you as, huh? That player seems like a really good fit with that team, and I kind of hope that happens. Hmm. Let me think about my favorite options for this. Uh this one is almost too numerous to mention, and it's, it's very non-Jays centric. I apologize, That's but okay. uh, a lot of teams need catching. <laughs> um, the Jays very much don't need catching; they have <laughs> too much catching. But so many playoff contenders need catching badly. Like, I, it's like half the teams that are in the playoff hunt are getting just zeros from their catcher. And I don't know if the Cubs are trying to keep Wilson Contreras in town, but he is really hitting this year, and I I don't see how so, how there isn't a big competition for him. I, you almost can't name all the teams that would want him. Like, the Giants could use him. The Padres could use him. The Cardinals could really use him. I mean, they won't. the Cubs won't trade him to the Cardinals, but it would be a pretty good fit. The Mets could use him. 
the Braves could probably use them, honestly. Like, I like Travis Darno, but I think they would like to have two catchers there. Uh, just almost every team could use more hitting from catcher. I mean, the Astros seem like they're committed to Martin Maldonado, but they shouldn't be. <laughs> the list just goes on and on. Uh, it, he's probably going to be the most coveted relative to, you know, relative to his contract status and years remaining and all that uh, player of anybody, because I just think there's just the most situational need there. Probably uh, the place, uh, the person that I'd put second on that list. And this is assuming once that it doesn't get traded, because I think that's still most likely, like you said, it's just a lot to line up quickly. If they can do it, I would do it now, but I think it's entirely possible that there's a lot of money to get moved. And they want to trade Patrick Corbin's contract. Then the owners just say, ah, look, we lost a little value, but let's do it in the offseason. <laughs> that'll just be easier. There's no way we can get this done in a week. So if he doesn't move, I think that the next most logical trade uh, pending availability would be Frankie Montes to the Cardinals. The Cardinals are just the team that most needs to do something. They have, they're going to have 40 men crunch problems because they have so many prospects getting close. They're pretty good at making these average guys, uh, like developing these average guys or drafting them well. And they really need like either a star or pitching and Frankie Montes like kind of fits what they do there. I think that would make a lot of sense. Luis Castillo is a similar deal. Again, like I don't think the Reds like trading within the division. Doesn't doesn't seem like they do that very often. And so that kind of makes the Cardinals less likely there. And once you get them out of the picture, I mean everyone wants Luis Castillo. Like he'd be a good pitcher on a lot of teams. So I think he'll be a big chip. But in terms of obvious fits, I'd say it's uh it's catcher with particularly the NL West teams, the the ones chasing the Dodgers, and then good starting pitcher to the Cardinals. Those are the two like obvious lines I can draw. It does make me wonder, obviously you you mentioned the Jays don't have that needed catcher. They have a wealth of catchers. You know, we we tend to always think of the deadline as well, there's buyers and there's sellers. And it kind of makes me wonder, especially in the NL, if there's a strength for strength kind of trade that a couple teams could make. These teams that do have catching options uh, I don't want to trade one of the Jays three catchers in hypotheticals. Uh, and I think it would have to be a pretty big deal for that to happen. But it does make you wonder if maybe there's a, there's more of a, a win-win type of move out there across yeah. leagues closer to the deadline. So most, I, I, likely, most likely that's Jansen, I, I would assume, if they're, if they're trading one of the catchers and they're not getting someone just crazy back, it's probably him. Yeah, and and I don't think they'd if it's not someone crazy back. I I actually don't think they'd explore that until the off season anyway. Um, yeah, it would have that to be sense. like a switching, pretty switching like that during the season is tough. Yeah, and you're not gonna hurt. You're not gonna kick yourself for giving Moreno more time in the minors. Like that's fine. Yeah, and, and Jansen has like is clearly the guy they're most comfortable with with the pitching staff and stuff like that as well. And if you're yeah. going to acquire a starter on the fly, you you probably want your best game caller and communicator back there a lot. Um, and he's yeah, hitting well. Point. So with the Cardinals, they're here Tuesday, Wednesday. You've kind of laid out the case why everything at the margins really matters for them right now because they're not good enough as currently constructed. They probably need to add. They're only up one game on Philly for the final wild card spot. I don't want to belabor the the vaccine stuff too much because it feels like it's a too much of a conversation every time a new team comes to Toronto. But what was the temperature of that Cardinals fan base when, yeah, it's only two games, but two potentially important games that Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, and Austin Romine won't be available for. 
Uh, don't leave out Johan Oviedo, who actually had his passport expire. He's oh, yes. Yes. No restricted list for him. That's just the the dum-dum list. Yeah, I feel bad that some traveling secretary is getting fired for that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it is it is divisive, to say the least, um, without delving too much into politics on this. Uh, St. Louis is kind of a, a mixed, uh, you know, pro-vax, anti-vax kind of place. Uh, the people that I talk to who are Cardinals fans, who are largely my family, just like can't believe it. <laughs> why, why in the world is this happening? Uh, and honestly, I think that anyone who doesn't think that is just kidding themselves. Like, if I were going to get paid millions of dollars to work in a very high-pressure industry, and then I had to travel internationally for it, and I told my boss, sorry, like, can't do it, they, they wouldn't be okay with that. It's, it's outrageous, and... You can say that lots of things are personal choices, but they got the polio vaccine, didn't they? Like, I don't know. It, it, it really bothers me that people can, and like, obviously these guys are very committed to winning overall. Arnado works out like crazy all the time. And Goldsmith does as well. Like they're not like slacking off and drinking martinis at five in the afternoon. This isn't the eighties, but it just boggles my mind that like two superstars, the best two players in the Cardinals, just bar none, no question, are just not bought in. Like, they they knew these games were on the schedule before the season started, and they just decided, all right, whatever. Like, I don't really, you know, whether we're going to type playoff race or not, I'm not going to be going. Uh, I think that would be very demoralizing if they were my teammates and they were the people who I looked up to. And, yeah, I'm I'm pretty unhappy about it as a fan. It's just, yeah, I don't know. It's, it was a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, and, you know, I, I imagine the scenario where the Cardinals missed the playoffs by one game and they lost these two or something like that, uh, how that'll look uh, after. It's only two games. So in these two games, we're going to see Adam Wainwright, who I know people are familiar with, and we just talked to Eno Saras about a little bit. Um, but we're going to see Pallante as well. I'm curious if, he, if you think he should be getting more buzz right now as a rookie or if the lack of kind of bat missing stuff caps his upside a little bit uh i think it kind of depends what you mean by upside he's not gonna strike out a ton of guys and i don't think he's going to be like a great perennial all-star kind of pitcher but uh one person that i've been taking the temperature of a lot of people about all around the industry recently is from rivaldez and Farmer Valdez is a lot better than Andre Pallante, so <laughs> let me just say that up front. Um, they're not the same players. Valdez is a lot better. But Valdez doesn't post incredible strikeout numbers. He walks like a few too many batters, and he doesn't have tremendous, like, both stamina in terms of going deep in games, and he's been a little bit injury-prone over his career. And every team is like, you know, I think you probably have Farmer Valdez too low on this list. He's just great because getting ground balls, is just really helpful, and especially when you're a team that's built around that, it's very important for pitchers to do that. And the Cardinals are built around getting ground balls. Plante is really good at it, and I just think that's going to work out really well for him in the intermediate term. Not every team can plug pitchers in like this and have it work. And if you have like the Phillies defense or this year's Twins defense or anything like that, it's it's not going to be a great time. But it's just an example of someone who is in a good spot to do well. And I think he's great at pitching to understanding that he is not throwing his, you know, best strikeout stuff all the time. He's throwing a lot of fastballs. He's not leaning on his uh, curveball, which I think is quite a good curveball uh, too much. He kind of 
goes to the slider cuttery thing more, which is more of a ground ball inducing pitch. I mean, honestly, like he's not going to be Adam Wainwright, but if you're a Cardinals fan and you're looking for the upside, he's you're hoping for late career Adam Wainwright out of a young guy. And hey, that'd be great. That's a that's pretty good for I think a second round draft pick a few years ago. Yeah, uh, Valdez is such a, a funny one. He's like modern day Brandon Webb, where the ground ball rate is just ten percentage points higher than anyone else, so you can't even compare him to yeah, guys. Yeah, it's uh, awesome. This has been awesome as well. Uh, ben Clemens of Fangraphs, keep up the great work. Looking forward to the rest of the trade value series, man. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Talk to you again soon. Ben Clemens of Fangraphs. Uh, the first two parts of what I think ends up being a six part trade value series up at Fangraphs right now. And as he teased, a couple of Blue Jays are going to be on those last couple parts in his top 40, maybe even his top 20 in terms of trade value. And that's something that Ben, he looks at some quantifying things using stats and projections and dollar values and things like that. But he also talks to a lot of people around baseball. And that lets you know that even thing, even though things have been up and down a little bit for the Blue Jays this year, when it comes down to your most important players... The Jays are still in pretty good shape. Alec Manoa and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. are certainly going to be on that list. I wonder if Alejandro Kirk makes it. Bo Bichette having a down year, but also potentially on there somewhere. Looking forward to those coming out. And some interesting, interesting to hear that the Cardinals could be shopping in the same pool as the Blue Jays. Uh, also interesting, as Ben laid out there, however you feel about the reasons why Goldschmidt and Arenado can't come to Toronto, when you are only one game up on a playoff spot and you don't have your two best players for a two-game series, whew, I uh, I wouldn't want to be that radio station host if the Jays take two against St. Louis and the Cardinals uh, fall out of a playoff spot. We'll see. I, I mean, the Jays, the Jays would love it. The Jays would love it. Let's take a break. On the other side, let's talk to a man who reads the trade market tea leaves better than just about anyone this time of year. Although he's going to want to talk about Matt Kachuk. Uh, John Morosi of MLB Network joins us next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. To Jay's Talk Plus, I'm Blake Murphy. That's victory. You've seen a lot of them lately, including three big ones over the weekend for the Toronto Blue Jays. The Toronto Blue Jays coming around of late. They've won eight of the last nine, and it now looks like we're back to the discussion point of, huh, the Jays are close. They should fortify this. Uh, they've got a window here. Instead of the Jays are falling apart, they need to patch this up. They're going to do something, though, almost surely between now and the August 2nd trade deadline. Uh, we're now joined by the man who will be here with us on the August 2nd trade deadline uh, to help us break it down from MLB Network and from NHL Network, where he had to break down a, a big surprise trade on Friday. It's John Morosi. How are you, man? <laughs> Blake, I'm outstanding. Love this time of year. I, actually, I just got back from the Hall of Fame uh, induction ceremony yesterday. What a great celebration that was. Landed, stopped over at the USA Hockey Arena to, to sort of get a little glimpse at the, the USA Hockey Camp here ahead of the World Juniors. So a good baseball hockey week for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. What, what did you think of the I, – I know you love when on Canadian radio we give you a, a little bit of window for hockey talk. So what did you think of the Mack trade? 
Listen, I, I think the Flames, in the midst of a trying time with Gaudreau leaving and, and obviously Kachuk not signing long-term, it, that's a tough hand to be dealt. And I think Brad Living did an amazing job of, of bringing back some immediate value. I mean, Huberdeau is an elite player. I mean, I, I think he's one of the best forwards in the whole league right now. And, and obviously, I understand there's the future component of this, which is can you extend Huberdeau and, and Uyghur, obviously, is a really important player as well. So I think that for the for the circumstances the Flames found themselves in, it'd be difficult for any Flames fan to say that Brad Living had to do more. I mean, I think he did the absolute best he could. He made a great deal. And, and look, look at this at this coming season when you consider the Flames still to be in a, in a winning window despite losing Gaudreau and having this trade happen. When you look at this year, is it possible that Huberdeau outperforms Kachuk? In different ways and different metrics, yeah, I, I think he. I mean, he, he more closely approximates the style of player that Gaudreau is. But I, I think that for what the circumstances are, the Flames could not have done better than this trade. Well, I uh, you, look, you're more the expert uh, than me when it comes to to that kind of stuff. So uh, <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Um, we'll pivot over to uh, the MLB trade deadline, which is again next week in a minute here. But you mentioned you were just at the Hall of Fame ceremony, and I know you know there was the David Ortiz side of it. You got to talk to Pedro Martinez as well. Um, first of all, I, I have questions off of that, but how cool was that for you? I love it. I mean, it's my third It's the third time I've been there for, for an induction day. I was there last September as well for Derek Jeter. It's it's special. You're you're revived. Your your passion, enthusiasm for the game. Uh, it's it's like a spiritual experience almost is the best that I can describe it, uh, because it's a hard place to get to. Uh, I love the Hockey Hall of Fame too, but it's certainly it's it's accessible for fans because Toronto is the center of the hockey universe. Cooperstown is is not easy to travel to. It's it's a good hour and a half drive out of Albany, a couple hours away from New York, uh, three hours or so longer than that from Boston, and and you have to travel on some very narrow roads to get there. And then you're there, and it's just a, it's a baseball place. And then you get a chance to actually walk into the Hall of Fame, and you see the Great Hall, and you see the statue of Buck O'Neill, and of course he was inducted over the weekend too. Um, it's a place where you feel humbled, hopeful. They have a, a great video. I would I would suggest to any fan that can possibly go to Cooperstown, go and then watch this video about the connectedness of the game uh, that I was there in May and it's recently retired players who were there and Chris Young, one of them and a colleague of mine at MLB Network. Chris had a great career, all-star player. And he said to me when it was over and he watched that video, he said, I wish that every player could see that uh, every spring training because it would fire you up to just be the best player that you can be and reach your full potential. But the only place you can watch that documentary is at the Hall of Fame. It's part of it's part of what makes that experience special about the history of the game. So I would recommend to everybody to go. Uh, it's just a really emotional place, and and uh, and to, to see the greatest roster of players ever, which is the the living Hall of Famers come back. And obviously, it's been such a heartbreaking time for the Hall to lose so many legends in the last couple of years. Uh, just to have everybody back together. On a summer's weekend, Johnny Bench looks like he can still play. He's got this youthful vibe about him. It's just a, it's a pretty cool place to be. So uh, not to turn a positive and hard turn to a negative, but I do want to ask you, um, you know, David Ortiz is kind of the, 
the big figure around this weekend, and he's been pretty outspoken about this. Pedro Martinez also there. Both of those are players, Hall of Famers, who were signed out of the Dominican Republic as amateurs. Um, we found out today that MLBPA rejected what the MLB called their final proposal for an international draft or, or an international inclusion to the draft. Did you get to talk to any of these players who have gone through that system about what needs to change uh, on the international free agent or draft market? Yes. Um, and, and even in the last six months or so, I, I spoke with both Bobby Abreu and Carlos Guillen, who had come from Venezuela and, and had long careers, all-star careers in major league baseball about their experience, and they, they actually have now academies there that involve the training and development of, of young players in Venezuela to, to get prepared for professional baseball. And even as free agents who came to the free agent process themselves, they said that we need a draft. They are supporters of the draft concept. And, and Blake, for me, it's a couple things. Number one, in MLB's proposal, there is more guaranteed money, I believe it's $191 million dollars, as compared to $167 million guaranteed to the class of players who are signing, who, again, sign in their age 16 season, 16. So that's already very young. Part of the issue is that, that because of the way this works, much like college recruiting for sports in the U.S., uh, that, that it really actually starts much earlier than the year in which you're committing. And so you're having these handshake agreements unofficial with 14, 15-year-olds, um, and, and then that's pressuring everybody to sign earlier and earlier, and it's, it's bad for the process. It's bad for the kids because they're getting rushed they're, when they're not ready, and then sometimes teams or players back out of the agreements, and then, and then that sets off the scramble at the last minute. It's, it's an inefficient system that has corruption in it that is not good. And MLB has tried to address the corruption that exists by offering the system in exchange for removing the qualifying offer system, uh, but it, it was rejected. MLBPA officials wanted it to be more closely in line with, with the money that's involved in the domestic draft, and so they said no. Uh, it's, it's disappointing because I really think that this would work to the betterment of players. There would actually be a more, uh, a more thorough structure that would allow the international players to get scholarship money because I think that, to me, and one of the other issues, even apart from the corruption that is inherent in, in the deals and how the training goes on and who gets the money when the bonus is actually handed out, those are issues of corruption that have to be handled and, and need to be improved. But the other thing is, and at least MLB's proposal was trying to deal with this, what do you do for the players that don't make it? Because many more players sign and don't make it than sign and do make it. And so they're leaving the island at the age of 16, almost by definition, not having completed high school. So if they are released out of A-ball, what happens? You've, you've taken them out of their communities at the age of 16. They have no high school education, finalized where do they go? And I think that that sort of acknowledging that issue is important to make sure that they have a full, well-rounded career after baseball and life after baseball. And that, to me, is where a lot of my thoughts go. And, and I think that's something that has to be more meaningfully talked about as a true partnership between the MLBPA and MLB. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and you know, obviously... A lot of things require more money at lower levels to, to make sure that 
the sport is healthy and just and things like that. But yeah, when you have the commissioner saying that he doesn't believe that minor leaguers make less than a living wage uh, and this stuff is happening, I, I don't have a, a ton of faith necessarily that, that we're close. But hopefully, you know, this was an MLB imposed deadline. So hopefully it's something that can continue to be negotiated and it's not an actual deadline. Uh, the one deadline that won't be negotiated, though, John, and uh, apologies for the, the, again, the hard pivot to something uh, lighter than the future of all of these young baseball hopefuls. Uh, August 2nd is the MLB trade deadline. We're only a little over a week away. There is some obvious excitement. Um, one of the bigger things that has come out is, is you've mentioned that the Cardinals are Cardinals are well positioned to land Juan Soto. What is your what is your feeling on the likelihood of just a Juan Soto deal at this point? I, I think it's better than fifty fifty. Hmm. I would say that there's about a sixty percent chance that Soto's traded by this time or Tuesday of next week. I really believe that. Uh, the Nationals have reached reached the point where they've offered him half a billion dollars, a little less than that, and he said no. And so if you can't sign him long-term and there's no indication that, that he's going to reopen negotiations or, or really wants to at this stage, you have to look at the next couple of years of your franchise. And they're not at all competitive with the Mets and the Braves and even the Phillies. And so if that's the case, you need, you need to move on and you need to do the best you can to secure your organization's future. You can't, you can't just hope that by 2024 that you keep them and that you maybe have a, a, a better chance to win at that point in time. I just I don't see that happening, and I think that Soto turning down such a large sum of money, candidly, has given the front office plenty of cover. I mean, how much? There's no credible way that a Nationals fan could say, "Well, you're you're too cheap. You didn't offer him enough money." I mean, that's that would have been the largest guarantee in the history of North American pro sports, I believe. So I, I don't think that anybody could criticize their willingness to to sign the player long term. And now it's just a matter of pairing up on a deal. And I think fortunately for the Nationals, the right teams are interested. Whether it's the Yankees, uh, they've got Anthony Volpe, obviously in the minor leagues, who's who's a really appealing young player. Uh, you look at a team like the Cardinals, who have such a great farm system, and Jordan Walker and Mason Wynn, who we saw clocked at 100 miles an hour from shortstop <laughs> in the Futures game, and then the Padres as well. I mean, they're they're one of the teams that's certainly interested. So the right teams are involved. Uh, they have a market that's developing, and uh, I really believe we're probably at about a 60% likelihood of a Soto trade, And whereas I think Otani is the opposite. I, I was told over the weekend just to not, not expect it's going to happen, and uh, the Angels, I'm sure, are going to be approached because it's natural, but I just think he is too... He is too inextricably linked to all of their marketing and business operations that to trade him midseason, and you have all the advertisers that have have booked uh, you know full years worth of advertising because Otani is there. Uh, how are they going to respond? I, I just I don't see that being a a real tenable conversation for the Angels to have given how they've played this year. So uh, I think Otani stays put, but I think uh, Soto has a new team by by next week. Well, I don't, I don't imagine the Jays will be aggressive enough to get in on something like a Soto. But as you talk around the league, it, when we get down to you know the tier below a Soto Otani, do you get a sense of, of where the Jays' aggression level is, or where their how their priorities line up this next week? 
I think that for me, the Jays should be involved on at least a lefty bat in the outfield, maybe a David Peralta type with the Diamondbacks. Maybe if they're talking the D-backs, they could add in Joe Mantiply, who's who made the All-Star game as a reliever. Uh, I think that, that type of player makes a lot of sense. Maybe it's a, a two-for-two kind of a deal, and, and you send a prospect their way. I also think adding a starting pitcher is really important because of – uh, of the struggles of Kikuchi and, and Ryu's injury, you need to give yourself some some flexibility and some depth. So whether it's a Chad Cool, Martin Perez, whether it's Jose Quintana, there are some names out there that are not the class of Luis Castillo whom you can go to. And, uh, you know, maybe you look to somebody like Tyler Malley who's under control for next year, but I, I think that for the Jays and their purposes – they can probably go to the route of, of looking for a, a rental if that ends up being the, the better course of action. So I think they can be open-minded. I think the good thing for them is their needs are, are fairly clear. Uh, they're playing better baseball, which is really important, just to have a little momentum and I think sort of help the front office see that this is indeed a playoff team and, and they're winning games, not just – it's not just that they're winning games, they're beating the Red Sox is one of their key – competitors really for a wild card burst so i think overall they're they're in a good run of form right now and you know they've responded well to the managerial change and uh, i would like them a lot better if they had a little more left-handed pitching or left-handed hitting rather and i think the key thing going forward is going to be you know when you're facing the really good teams and you're you're getting tested against really good right-handed pitching how do their key righty bats respond i do think they still need a lefty bat or two to sort of add more balance, but the, the ultimate question for this team is going to be when they face Houston in the playoffs or face the Yankees in the playoffs and Garrett Cole is having a Garrett Cole game or Tyon's having a Tyon game or Verlander, whomever you want to mention, Christian Javier, how do they respond when they're facing quality stuff and, and forcing those pitchers to be in the zone? Because if they're not disciplined, they're not going to see a strike and they're not going to win. And I think it's going to really be incumbent on the Jays to have a really disciplined approach going forward. And I think it's going to really tell the tale about the success or failure of their season. Yeah, and, and look, that's already bared itself out. You can track the Jays' offensive success, kind of, you know, chop the season into two- and three-week chunks or whatever, and the offense tends to go the way the the disciplined approach goes. And I don't think they're ever going to necessarily be, you know, lead the league in walks team, but there's aggression and then there's, you know, a more patient aggressive aggression or more disciplined aggression. And that's kind of the, the sweet spot for them when they're at their best. Um, you mentioned, I, I want to focus just on the pitching market, just because I do I do think the Jays are probably leaning more pitching. I, I agree with you that if they could upgrade that, you know, Bradley Zimmer spot on the on the roster and fortify the outfield with a lefty bat a little bit, they'd explore that. Um but the the needs are pretty obvious at pitching and pitching kind of gets lumped into these tiers. And you mentioned a trio of guys, Quintana and Cool and Perez. Um what what is the asking price on guys like that? I, I know you know, it, it only takes one team to, to top the next offer, but it does feel like there are a handful of guys in that tier, and maybe it doesn't cost you a fortune in prospect capital to land one of them. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that for me, I look at the Jays farm system as saying, okay, there's, there's three guys that I think have very high value. Uh, Martinez, Moreno, who obviously has already made it to the big leagues, and Tiedemann. I think Tiedemann is their best pitching prospect, really polished. I, I think he's got a chance to be a, 
a very effective starter in the major leagues for a long time. Those three, I think, are in a little different class. You know, Groshans has a good pedigree, hasn't really produced um, and, and had been consistent like you would maybe expect based on where he was drafted. So I, I, I do think that if, if the Rangers call up and ask for Groshans in exchange for Perez, I think the Jays have to listen to that. I, I really do. I, I don't think that he should be off limits, nor should an Otto Lopez. Uh, you know, I, I think the Jays are lucky that they've got some infield depth right now uh, in the minor leagues, and and so I think that that's where that's where if if we're talking about a, a rental starter who's going to make a big impact, and we can argue if that's Quintana or not, but I I really believe that you have to think about Groshans for for a, a player in in that group. Uh, you know, if it's Tyler Malley, I think at the very least, Groshans, because there's some control for next year on him. And, and I think that one thing the Jays have that almost no other team has is depth at catcher, depth at major league ready catcher, which is a really nice asset to have in your organization. And so that's where, as hard as it would be to trade a Danny Jansen, I think you have to at least think about it. You know, Kirk, Kirk's an all-star. And I realized that, that Jansen is a, a very popular person in that clubhouse and, and is someone that they really value defensively too. But Alejandro Kirk is an all-star who, who hits, who is one of the best offensive catchers in the sport. And as long as he can play defense adequately, and if you have a, another good glove guy, depending on how you feel about Moreno, there's just, to me, if you feel like you have the pieces of a team that can beat the Astros and Yankees in a playoff series, or at least are a couple moves away from getting there, I think it's kind of silly to keep three catchers and say, well, we've got to keep all these guys and let let the trade deadline go without making a huge impact because we want to protect our catching depth. I just, You've got an all-star, and once you've got an all-star at that position, I think you have to be open-minded to listening on either either of, of Moreno or Jansen, and if you do that, then, then you say, "Hey, listen, I'll move, I'll move one of these guys, but I better get somebody back who I've got control of for a couple few years." And and if the if when you really think about it, who helps the Jays more right now? A like the third catcher on their roster, or a bona fide mid rotation starter that you could get if you gave up a legitimate catcher? It's the latter for me. And and you're in a winning window. You're, you're not in a talent accumulation phase. This is a team that has that missed the playoffs by a game. And this is not a year to just sort of uh, wait and see and see how things look in the offseason. This is a year that, for me, calls for boldness. boldness. It's why Charlie Montoya is no longer the manager of the team right now. You, this is a year where they have to go for it. And uh, I think putting one of those catchers in play at the deadline, if you get someone back who's controllable, is a, a very prudent approach right now for the Jays. I agree I, I think the catcher thing is maybe something they'll they'll w- prefer to look at in the off season but yeah if you want to get in the mix for the top names you got to give up the top prospects and, and or the top assets and that's you know catchers the position of weakness around the league right now uh john morosi thank you for taking the time really looking forward to chatting with you on deadline day next week and getting to meet you in person finally yeah can't wait, Blake. It's going to be a lot of fun, my friend. It's, I'll be probably a little a little frenzied, a little harried, but we're going to make this happen, okay? Yeah, we absolutely will. John Morosi, MLB Network, NHL Network. Uh, thanks so much. That was John Morosi. Uh, yeah, thinks the Jays could be 
pretty active. Uh, the Tyler Molly thing, we got to, I got to hit up our pal C. Trent Rosencrantz down in Cincinnati and see if Molly has been vaccinated because, of course, the Blue Jays can't be in the market for uh, players who haven't been because they wouldn't be able to play half the games uh, because the rules apply both ways, as you've surely heard by now. Um, so it does have an impact on the Jays, and it certainly has an impact on who they can be in the market for. No game tonight. This is the spot we normally tee it up, break down the numbers, look at the pitching matchups, the lineups, things like that. No game. It's an off day. The Jays have two off days in eight days. They're off next Monday, too. It's a an embarrassment of off days for the Blue Jays relative to what the couple months before that were like. Looking ahead, though, the St. Louis Cardinals are here for two. That is a Cardinals team that is in a playoff spot right now, but only a game up. They're about where the Jays were a series ago in terms of standings and overall feel. They're a pretty high-powered offense. They ranked eighth in the league in WRC Plus so far this year. But let's take a closer look at that quickly. They're only 11th against right-handed pitching. And they are, of course, without Paul Goldschmidt, who has been maybe the best hitter in baseball this year, and Nolan Arenado. And those two guys have been worth a combined 10 wins already this season. Per Fangrass wins above replacement. Austin Romine also not here, which isn't a huge deal because it's only two games and he's not he's not a particularly great catcher. But they're also without Yadier Molina, who's headed on a rehab assignment. So uh, Austin Romine and his 136 batting average and 136 slugging percentage uh, won't be here. But no Goldschmidt, no Arenado. That is by far the two best hitters on the Cardinals roster a roster that doesn't hit righties as well as lefties as it is. So now you're looking at Tommy Erdman, Dylan Carlson, Brandon Donovan, Juan Yepes. That's Those are the guys. Nolan Gorman. Those are good players, but they don't strike fear in you the way that Paul Goldschmidt and Nar- Nolan Arenado do. Uh, the Jays are going to see almost 41-year-old Adam Wainwright, who is still tremendous and still a lot of fun to watch. They're also going to see Andre Pallante, who doesn't miss a lot of bats, but as we've seen with the Blue Jays, somewhat paradoxically, it's guys like that who have been a little funkier, a little more smoke and mirrors that have given them trouble of late. That's been more on the left-handed pitching side than the right-handed pitching side. But we'll see. We'll see if they can uh, find a way to get to Palante in the first game of that series. The Jays, meanwhile, because of the off day, don't have to use a fifth starter. They're going to keep everyone on turn and push that decision to, it sounds like, July 30th, which would be Saturday. Uh, Barrios and Gosman going in the first two games of this series. We'll be back tomorrow in this same... We're 5-7 to seven all week, by the way, for Jays Talk Plus. Um, so we'll be the lead into all four games, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Really looking forward to that one. Tomorrow, we'll have on Katie Wu for the Cardinal side of things. We'll have on our pal Chris Black as we do every Tuesday and we'll tee up these games proper and continue to talk deadline stuff. That's tomorrow, five to seven. Thanks to JR and Andrew behind the glass. Thanks to you, dear listener. Uh, this has been Jay's Talk Plus. We'll talk to you tomorrow on Sports at 590, The Fan.